Okay, so there's a little handout right here. As I told people, it's the longest one. I, so the first time I did the first talk, I had almost a page of a handout. Second time I had about a page and a half, and this is six pages, so if we go any longer, I won't have enough paper to do the handouts. So in any event, so <clears throat> I'm gonna try to go through a lot of things tonight. There's some things I'm not gonna touch on that I think are good to talk about sometime in the future. Like for instance, uh, how we use, uh, well, number one is the scripture in the liturgy and in the services of the church. Actually, there's a, a fellow priest of ours who's written a book that basically says, look, about 85% of the divine liturgy is right from the scripture. And he actually has a book, it's up in the library there, where he, he goes through the whole of the liturgy and he has a, a little reference all, of all the scripture references for almost everything in there. So now maybe some, he's sort of stretching the point it's in some places and all of that, but that's one thing to talk about. Another thing to talk about is where certain scriptures are used during the services of the church. So we come to like this, um, for instance, we have lots of stuff happen this coming weekend. And so there's a, <clears throat> uh, on Friday we have what are called royal hours. And royal hours are, we'll read from Old Testament, we'll read from the letters, and we'll read from the gospels for each of those hours. Well, why do we pick those particular readings? So that's another good thing to talk about. I'm not going to talk about any of that. All I'm going to talk about tonight is the, how the New Testament comes to be, and I'm probably going to go through it faster than I did the Old Testament. We're going to talk a little bit about how to read the Bible, but what I want to do, in, and even in that regard, what I go through is really just a sort of a shorthand for what Metropolitan Callistos Ware wrote in the Orthodox Study Bible, which is in the back of the Bible. It's an excellent thing to read. It's how to read the Bible. It's in the back there. I'm just going to give you the highlights of all of that. But coupled with that, the last thing I'm going to talk about is interpretation of the scriptures. Now, I'm not going to try to interpret anything for you, but I'm going to talk about how we approach interpreting the scriptures and give you a, a really wonderful piece or excerpts from a very excellent piece of writing that should, I hope, help you with all of that and help you to sort of have the idea of what an orthodox mind is toward the scriptures, but even an orthodox mind toward other things as well. So... Starting with the New Testament, generally all the tradition, all traditions except uh, the 27 books of the New Testament, and agree on what that list is, and and effectively it's it's done in practice. Although some of the official things, like for the Copts and uh, for the uh, Ethiopians, for the Armenians, they have some things that officially are in their scriptures that aren't that are beyond what we have in those 27, but they're never printed. So they just print them like we do. So really everybody's using the same thing. The official sort of date for canonization or for, for uh, uh, authorizing what's in the New Testament canon for Orthodox is given as the year 692 at the Second Council of Trullo, which is a part of the Sixth and Seventh Councils of the Church. It's sort of, it's an interesting council. We won't go into it, but 692. Roman Catholics don't sort of make it official until the Council of Trent in 1546. That's very remarkable. Episcopalians do it in, evidently in the 39 articles in 1563. Uh, those who are Calvinists sort of look to two dates, 1559 and 1647. The first one is a Gallic Conference on Faith, and then the second one is the Westminster Confession of Faith. So 
However, much earlier than that, we probably had arrived on what those books were. What we hadn't arrived on uh, in the first century was what those books were, because we really don't have all of those books until the very end of the first century. If you remember what I handed out last time was a list of all the scripture of the books in the Old and the New Testament, and I put in there for you the dates and all of those. Well, all of the dates, at least from our perspective for the New Testament, are actually all written in the first century. And probably the last thing that was written was, what do you think? And, and I'll even let the seminarians answer. What do you think the last thing written was in the New Testament? You have to go first because you're the... <laughs> Or the letters. Yeah, but I'm not going to tell you which one. It was one of those five. <laughs> I think traditionally, though, it's probably the gospel. I think probably the gospel is the last thing you read. So probably about the year 95. So it's at the end of that. John lived to be a very old man. Um, so for us, all of that's written uh, in the lives of, uh, in the first century and, and during the lives of those who saw and knew, the, knew our Lord. Some people would argue that some of that takes place in the second century. I don't think that's, uh, we don't, that's not what we think necessarily at all. Um, so there's a very nice little, <clears throat> it's really, I think, about the only thing that we can look to in the scriptures. In 2 Peter 3.16, Paul writes this. He says, excuse me, Peter writes this, 2 Peter 3.16. It's nice, isn't it? John 3.16, 2 Peter 3.16. Uh, he, Paul, that is, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. I don't really like this translation, but I'm just reading it to you. As they do the other scriptures. So Peter actually refers to Paul's letters as scripture. So I, I think that's probably the only place in the New Testament where you sort of have that sort of authority given to it. But the church begins to, uh, uh, as it were, circulate lots of these writings. The letters really probably first, although some would argue that, you know, Mark's gospel comes very early. Others would say Mark's gospel comes later. We don't have good... Those who do all this critical analysis will tell you one thing. Others who look at the traditions of the church and what's handed down would say something maybe in keeping with that, maybe a little different. Um, we probably have, by the mid-second century, uh, Justin Martyr actually speaks about the, uh, the memoirs of the apostles being circulated. Uh, by Irenaeus, time, Irenaeus uh, of Lyon in about 180, there's a, a set of four Gospels, which are called the Tetramorph, the, the four Gospels. Um, later on, by the third century, Origen begins probably using the 27 books that we do, but there was, const there was some consternation about some of the books, whether they really belong there or not. Some of those were like Hebrews. Who wrote Hebrews? We say Paul Wright wrote Hebrews. Well, I think Paul wrote Hebrews, but lots of people say, oh, he couldn't have written it. The language is too different. And I, I don't even think it matters. It's a book of the church, right? It's a book of the faith. Hebrews was one, 2 Peter, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. Revelation was always the one that was really hard for people to get their heads around. If you've tried to read it, you know why. Okay? And actually, it's the only book, and I think, I think this is right, it's the only book in the whole of the scriptures that's never read assigned a reading in the liturgy anywhere or any of the services of the church. Yet, 
it's in our canon. It's in our canon. So it's very important to us. We just don't read it there. Some people say, why is that? You know, maybe, maybe the fathers in their great wisdom say, that's something that we read with our priest, with, our, with those who can teach us. It's not something that we even would put out in, even in the liturgy. Where did, whatever the reason, I don't know. Um, from the, about the year, well, in, in those early first century, second century, these books are circulating. Uh, Clement of Rome, about the year 96, makes reference to uh, the words of Jesus and, and, uh, and, and of certain pieces of writing that are circulating. Um, we see one of the earliest writers who begins to sort of accumulate things is a bishop by the name of Marcion. Marcion later is actually excommunicated as a heretic. He's excommunicated as a heretic, but his sort of desire to bring together this list of books probably pushes the rest of the church to do that very thing itself. And Marcion uh, only accepted one gospel. He only accepted Luke. He accepted most of the letters, but he really, for the most part, rejected the Old Testament. He says the God of the New Testament is not the same God of the Old Testament, which is obviously what, what leads to his excommunication, among other things. He rejected the theology of the Old Testament. Um, so he sort of spurs the rest of, the, uh, of those who were in authority to begin to do something about all that. But Justin Martyr in the mid-2nd century mentions the memoirs of the apostles. Um, Tatian, and I'm not sure how to say T-A-T-I-A-N, or Tatian, or Tatian, anyway. Tatian does an interesting thing. He writes this thing called the Diatessaron. How many of you have ever heard of that? The Diatessaron. Yeah, well, so the Diatessaron was really his effort. He harmonized, he put all of the four Gospels into one writing and sort of follows the chronology of John, but, but sort of puts all of that together. So it's one book. And then actually there's a, there's a novel called The Fifth Gospel, which is a very interesting novel if you're interested in reading it. <laughs> Uh, it's called the fifth gospel, and they refer to the Diatessaron as the fifth gospel. But it's really Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John put together. Um, church, it's still there, you can see it, but the church really sort of settles on these four gospels. Um, <coughs> Irenaeus of Leon referred directly to a divine set of four gospels called the Tetramorph. In his central work against heresies, he denounced the various Christian sects that only used one, which would have been uh, Marcion. Irenaeus declared that the four he espoused were the pillars of the church. It is not, quote, it is not possible that there can be either more or fewer than four. He basically says there have to be four. And he takes that from uh, the four directions of the compass. He takes it from other places in nature. We sort of see fours repeat. Uh, and he says that's, that it's just the four corners. And, that's what, and so it's very interesting. If you go into a really appropriately and well done church that in its iconography on the interior under the dome will have four pillars, right? Holding up the dome. And the icons on those four pillars are the four gospel writers. So it's sort of following what he sort of it, it laid out there. Uh, there were other works that are actually very profitable, which uh, he regarded as such, but not necessarily as, as scripture. You've heard of 1 
Clement, or even Second Clement, the Epistle of Polycarp, uh, Ignatius' Epistles, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, all of those are very worthwhile books, but they don't find their way into the Scriptures. There's a, a thing, I think I wrote it down on here, the Moratorian Fragment. About the year 200, we find this uh, sort of piece of writing which makes reference to a defined list. So by 200, there probably was a shape of what that list was going to be. But really, at that point, there's still some variation. If you went into North Africa, and you went into Asia Minor, if you went into Rome, you'd probably find some differences about what were read. And some would be, accept some things, some wouldn't. But there, it's, it's coalescing in time as the church is growing and developing this community, this local community and this ecumenical community. And I say that in the purest form, not sort of modern ecumenism, but an ecumenical, the whole of the world. Um, Clement of Alexandria, probably in the, in the third century, makes reference to the 27 books. Maybe the earliest place we see, or, or on, on another place a little later on in the fourth century, early fourth century, um, Efse Eusebius writes a history. So most people are familiar with his history of the church. It's a, it's a really important book to read about the uh, history of the early church. And in there, uh, Eusebius makes mention of the books of the New Testament. And there's still some controversy of what, about what, what those particular things are. Ultimately, it sort of gets resolved because Augustine pushes very hard. <laughs> now, Augustine is not necessarily the one who made the list. Or, I mean, it's out of the life of the church. It's very important. Understand, this is out of the life of the church. But in 363, Athanasius, who wrote a, a long, well, sometimes they were long, sometimes they were short. At Pascha, every year, Athanasius wrote a letter to his, his parishioners get, to tell them when the time of Pascha was, when it was going to be celebrated, and, and sort of give them encouragement for the fast, give them encouragement about the, the life they were in. Because if you know Athanasius' life, he was exiled five times from his Episcopal see. So, I mean, he, he knew what it meant to have struggle. And, and he was pursued. People wanted to kill him. And, uh, but in any event, he writes these letters every year, whether he was in exile or not. And so in 363, he puts together in his, uh, in, I believe I have this right. Let's see if I can find that. Um, he formulates the 27 books in a letter, then 363. Now, what happens is later on, Augustine sort of begins to push that. And so Augustine, there's, uh, it's referred to as the Synod of Hippo in the year 393. And then maybe the one that's most often cited is the Council of Carthage in 397. There was a subsequent Council of Carthage in 419, and all three of those 393, 397, 419, all sort of listed these 27 books as the books, our canon, our authorized canon. Now, as a ecumenical kind of thing, as I said, we don't find that outside these local councils until about almost the year 700 at the Council of Trullo, which affected everybody. But by that time, they were being used by everybody, and everybody was following this sort of uh, usage of, or at least delineation of what's appropriate for our New Testament canon. Um, there's some differences with the Armenian canon. They're slight, but they don't print those anymore. Copts and Ethiopians have some variances. They don't print them anymore. Martin Luther, when he comes along, you've probably heard this, and I'll just mention this in passing. There were certain things he didn't like about what was in the New, canon, New, the New Testament. <laughs> 
He was, he was not a, <clears throat> wasn't a fan of James. James seems ultimately way too practical for Luther, I think. I, I don't, I'm not a great scholar about, of anything any, at all, but certainly not of Luther, but I know a little bit. But, you know, Luther was the faith alone guy, and James is very practical. You know, you've got to do, you, you have to go out there and work. You have to, um, I heard this thing the other day, he said, if you, if you want your prayers answered, get up and do something. Well, because God works with you. And that's, I mean, that's a sense of, this this idea in life of synergy with God. I mean, you pray and you work. You work and you pray. And I mean, whether it's in the monastery, whether it's in the secular world, wherever it might be. So we, we're actively involved in our own salvation. That's why you fast. That's why you pray a prayer rule. That's why you do all of those things. It's not like you say, okay, God just saved me. You get involved with it. Because in doing all of those things, you come to do the very first thing that I talked about, which is what? Know God. Know God. That's what's important, to know God. Um, so Luther wasn't always troubled by Jude, by James, by Hebrews, and certainly by Revelation. However, in the end, all of that gets accepted by the Germans. Uh, the evangelical canons don't have, I mean, really, they all look to, they look to us. Now, they may list a whole group of things about how we know what's in the scriptures, but really, by the time they get to this thing, it's already there, and it's been, been used for almost a millennia before they ever sort of lay hands on all of this. And so, essentially, from the Old Testament, they just take the Old Testament canon. From the New Testament, they take the Roman Catholic canon, which is our canon. Uh, just a... That's all I'm going to say about the about coming together. Any questions about that? 1546, the Roman Catholic. Council of Trent. Right. It's really actually reaffirming. <laughs> 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 were, were you there? <laughs> no, I heard about it. <laughs> <laughs> they invite you? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was actually reaffirming some other statements, but it was really sort of the first sort of omnibus kind of pronouncement, I think. But well, what happened between the schism and 1546? Between what? The, the breakup between the words of God. I mean, they were all, everybody was already using those 20s. There just wasn't an authoritative statement. That's all. That's all that date is. Uh, it's so like, they were using the same oh, yes. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Said, yeah. Okay. Now we're going to. Right. Break. Exactly. It's okay. exactly right. Okay. I, if I want to, I want to leave you with one thing. How do you know what, what the New Testament scriptures are? It's because the church tells you what they are. So, I'll, I'll repeat this in another way, but it's not the scriptures that authenticate the church. And actually the scriptures don't spring forth and then we have the church. It's the church that has life because the Holy Spirit dwells within it. The, whole, the Son has become incarnate. The Father has blessed it. And, and because the church is, out of the church come these writings, which the church then select from and say, these are our most important written record of the revelation of God to man. It's the church's book, belongs to the church. And, and it's the church who tells us what it is. It also has the right to tell us what it says. But the, what is the church? It's the whole body of believers. It's the body of Christ. 
So when we say the church tells us what it says, it's you, but it's also you with Basil the Great, and Irenaeus of Lyon, Augustine, John of Damascus, all of these great mothers and fathers of the church who speak to this in concert, and we're going to talk more about that before we get to the end here. See, I'm doing my time. Okay. How to read the Bible. Again, I want to point you toward what uh, Metropolitan Callistos has written in the Orthodox Study Bible, but I'm going to just touch on it. He makes reference to the fact that the, you know, I think we get, we take a lot of things for granted, don't we? I think we take the scriptures for granted. They're there. We know they're important. St. Tikhon says, you have been sent a letter by the King of Heaven. I mean, why would you, why would you not go to there and read it? And, and, and I'm the world's worst. I'm not a great reader of the scriptures. But I mean, it's basically Tikhon is saying, why would you not spend lots of time with that? He wrote to you. There's this beautiful, I, I printed it here for you. This beautiful statement in what was called the Moscow Conference in 1976. Okay, I didn't tell you everything that was. It was between Orthodox and the Anglicans, okay? So they have this mutual conference about the scriptures. But they write this, and I think this is a beautiful piece of writing, so I want to read it out loud. You have it. You can take it with you. The scriptures constitute a coherent whole. They are at once divinely inspired and humanly expressed. Man and God. Synergy, right? They bear authoritative witness to God's revelation of himself in creation, in the incarnation of the word, and in the whole history of salvation, and as such, express the word of God in human language. Now, they didn't capitalize that word, but I think you could probably have that both capitalized and lowercase. Word of God as words, and word of God as person. We know, receive, and interpret the scriptures through the church and in the church. Our approach to the Bible is one of obedience. And then Metropolitan goes, of Calistus goes off uh, and basically says, look, if you're going to have a spiritual mind toward the scriptures and, and to read them, then you're gonna have, your reading of them is going to be marked by what he calls four characteristics. The first one of these is, he says, is obedience. God is speaking to us, both in, as individuals and as a collective community. Uh, and, and when we come to this, we should have this sense of wonder that it is the king of heaven that sort of has allowed this inspirational material through men whose hearts are t and women who t or who, who, whose hearts have been turned toward God. He, he's given this to us. There should be a sense of wonder in all of that. And we should have this attitude of, OK, I want to be shaped and formed by this rather than for me to judge it. How is this? Uh, I, I want to be a listener. I don't want to be a, 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 a critic. Okay? I, I do think it's good to read it and to think, oh, yeah, what does this mean? I think it's good to think on that on your own. But what you don't do is think on it on your own without this backdrop of what the Holy Fathers have laid out to us as an understanding of who God is. I mean, there's, there's this, I forget who it was. I don't remember. There was some, some of our saints one of our saints who said every time he'd read the scriptures he would put the the Nicene Creed beside him so he always had the Nicene Creed there as he read the scriptures because he knew the Nicene Creed came it was a formulation of who God is Father Son Holy Spirit if you're not seeing we spend lots of time in our catechism class talking about who what that is all about 85% of the Nicene Creed is who is God who is God and so 
this saint, again, I can't remember who it was, basically said, if I'm going to read this letter from God, I want to make sure I know who God is. So he always had that beside him. So he's tying the tradition of the church in its expressed uh, uh, formulations by the council with a written expression and sort of making sure that these things tie together. So we should be listeners, one, so we're obedient. Number two, he says, our reading is ecclesial. It's, it's with the mind of the church. We receive the scriptures through the church. It's the church that tells us what they are. It's the church that instructs us how they are to be understood. And I just, uh, this is a nice, I don't think we've ever thought about it this way, but this is in Acts 8, 30 and 31. Again, I don't, I'm not a great fan of this translation. I just picked it up and stuck it in here. So Philip ran to him. This was when he was the Ethiopian and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. So we've got great guides for centuries. And we've got current guides who've studied those guides for centuries. Look, I'm not here to make Father Alex or Father Philip or certainly not me some authority on all of that. And I hope that, and I I can speak for them, and I hope I would do the same thing. If you come and ask me what something means, I would would try to tell you with the mind of the church. And if I don't know, I would say, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe we need to go read about that. We need to read what the fathers say about that. Let's find out if there's somebody who's spoken on that. And there's some places where, there's some pieces of Scripture there hasn't been a lot written or or expounded upon. Others are just copious amounts on. You can spend lots of time reading that. But also in the life of the church, how do we pray? How do we pray? Where are those scriptures used in in the services of the church? All of that, important. We read the scriptures, and I want to see if anybody knows why I put that in there. We read the scriptures the way we pray the Lord's Prayer. What What am I saying there? I want to see if anybody knows what I'm saying. What's the first word? What's the first word of the Lord's Prayer? That's how we read the Scriptures. It's not my Bible. It's our Bible. It's written to each one of us, but it's written to us together. So the same way, and Christ says, how are you going to pray? I mean, when the apostles say, how do we pray? Go say, our Father. Man, there's so much packed in just that one answer that he gives them in that first word. How do we pray? We want to pray like you. It wasn't that they'd never prayed when they asked him that question in the scriptures. They prayed. They said, no, essentially what they're saying, we want to learn to pray the way you pray because you're praying the way we we ain't quite reached yet. He said, so how do we do this? And so in Luke, it's very, this is also a testimony to, to liturgical prayer because in Luke it says, when you pray, you know what the next word is in Luke? Say. The very next word is, use this, these words. <laughs> say these words. When you pray, say, our Father. And so our, it's ours. So that's how we should read it. Okay, number three. Our reading is Christ-centered. Colossians 1, 16 through 18. I'm, I'll read it. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were, were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and he in him all things exist. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. And 
in one translation, it may even say Christ is in all and is all. Christ is in all and fills all and is all. So, so that's the way the scriptures are. The scriptures are completely focused on the God-man. So that's how we read the Old Testament. I don't think most of us read the Old Testament that way, but that's the way we are intended to read it. It's they're Christ-centered, and that's what Metropolitan says. Felicito says when we read the Bible, we should remember that. Okay, this is the God-man came for me, and this is the letter from His Father and Him and the Holy Spirit to me, and and He's the one who comes to be and to rescue us. So. Understand that this, this, all of these writings are focused on understanding the God-man. Those are his words. Number four. I think this is really important because we tend to forget this. but, Or maybe we don't. Maybe this is how you all do this. Our reading is personal. This is a letter to you. This is not a letter to just the church. It's a letter to you or their letters to you, or their writings to you, or their books that are given to you. So Metropolitan Callista says you need to read and see these narratives. What happens to David in these set of circumstances? Or what happens to one of the apostles? Or what happens to Ruth? Or what happens to any of these people? And, and see how all of this narrative of people interacting with God, or teachings that God gives, whether it's the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's the, the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament prophets or John the Baptist in the New, you know, whatever it is, how does that apply to me? It's written to me. John the Baptist, John the Baptist has the greatest of, of all direction. The greatest of, what is his direction? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we know it's the greatest of direction because it's the first words that the Lord utters when he starts his own public ministry. He just repeats the same thing John said. So how does this apply to me? I better be repenting. I don't mean that as a threat. I mean, I think, how do we find life? I look around here. All of you are, y'all are, y'all are very, you love the church. Everyone in here. There's nobody in here that doesn't love the church. You all do. You love the services of the church. And so all this makes sense to you, I'm sure. But so look at all of that and see how does this apply to me? Okay? Okay. That's enough on that. Go read Metropolitan Road. Last thing. Or any questions on that part? Last thing. Interpretation of the scriptures. I've written three little short sentences, but then we're going to read something here that are in the next three pages. Simply stated, we should interpret the scriptures with the mind of the church. It is our protection to follow the understanding that the holy fathers and mothers of the church have given to us. An excellent outline of, quote, how to is found in Commonatory of St. Vincent of Laurent. St. Vincent of Laurent was a, a monk in Gaul, in the early 5th century, if you, lots of people know about this writing. There are those who want to impugn the writing a bit, though. And those who want to impugn it a bit will sort of charge uh, Vincent, particularly if they're of a Calvinist bent, they'll charge him as being a, and I'm, we're not going to spend lots of time in all of this, but they'll charge him as being semi-Pelagian. Well, that sounds really bad, doesn't it? He's a semi-Pelagian. Well, 
he may have had what was perceived to be an unhealthy semi-Pelagian bent, but probably it was, as much as anything, a lack of understanding of the orthodox mindset of God working in us and through us and our willingly accepting that help. So I'm just telling you that if you, if you want to go read something about him and you find that, don't, don't be put off like, oh, you know, Father didn't tell us he was a semi-Pelagian. Well, <laughs> it probably wasn't. But if he was, it, wasn't, it was probably what they perceived that as was probably not exactly what it was. In any event, he wrote this beautiful thing, and, and actually he describes why he wrote it. So I printed off, not, in no way is this all of it. This is just some opening parts of it. And even it, is a, its language is a little stilted. So I went through and I highlighted the parts that I'm going to read to make it a little more readable for you. And I'm just going to read through it and comment as I go. And so he says in the opening here, you can read, he says, I, I'm not going to read the highlighted parts, or excuse me, the bold parts and the italicized part of what I'm going to read. But <clears throat> he uses a pseudonym, but he says, I peregrinus. But what he means is it's Vincent who's writing, okay? So if you go down about the middle of that page, you'll see the first bold letter. It says I, and I put in parentheses Vincent. I, Vincent, am persuaded that it is most necessary that I should put down in writing the things which I have truthfully received from the Holy Fathers, since I shall then have ready at hand wherewith by constant reading to make amends for the weakness of my memory. So what he's saying is, okay, these things have been handed to me through the, through the church. Through the, through the traditions of our church, through our life of, of prayer, our life of activity, our life of work, our life of repentance, our life of forgiveness, all of that. These have been handed on to me, but I don't have a very good memory. I don't have a very good memory. So he says, I don't want to forget. So I want to, I want to pin this essentially for my own purposes because I don't want to forget. I, I, I forget. I want to be able to remember these things that have been handed to me. Okay. I skipped the second paragraph, third paragraph. I will set about to record with fidelity or truth, with the fidelity of a narrator, the things, and, and basically says, I'm not trying to do anything new here. I just want to hand to you what's been given to me. That's what Paul says in, in, in the scripture. He says, I, I, I give to you that which I received. That's what John of Damascus does in the 8th century. He says, I just, I, I'm not an innovator. I'm not a novel thinker. I'm just going to collate and bring these things together. Well, here's Vincent in the early part of the 5th century saying the same thing. To record with fidelity of a narrator the things which our forefathers have handed down to us and committed to our keeping. Uh, plural pronoun, right? I shall touch upon only what is necessary in simple and ordinary language. For me, it will be enough to have provided a commonatory, which means actually, he, he says, he defines that as a remembrancer, a reminder, I like that's a better word, as a reminder, as a reminder for myself. I shall endeavor to amend and to keep more complete little by little, day by day, by recalling to mind what I have learned. So then he says, a general rule for distinguishing the truth of the Catholic faith. Now, Catholic, in this case, you understand that doesn't mean Roman Catholic. That means universal. 
It means the fullness of the church. It means what we are, okay? And actually, you know the official name of our patriarchate? We're the Greek Catholic Orthodox Church of Antioch and all the East. So we're Catholic, it's universal, that's what that means, okay? All right, so a general rule for distinguishing the truth of the Catholic faith from falsehood or heretical depravity. And let me say one more thing. This is not about sorting out heresy. This is not about calling people names. What's the first thing I said? We want to do what? Know God. But if somebody confuses you and gives you the wrong directions, you're not going to end up at God's house. You want to go to the right house. You want to go to the right place. You want to know the God who's there because there are many powerful beings that aren't God. We want to know God. So it's not about sort of ferreting out people who think wrong. It's about turning our back on those ideas and thoughts that would dissuade us from loving God, and from knowing God, and from drawing near to God and praying to God. That's what it's about. That's what heretical pravity is, or depravity. I have often then inquired earnestly and attentively of very many men eminent for sanctity and learning by what sure and universal rule I may be able to distinguish the true Catholic faith from falsehood of heretical or heresy, we'll just say. I have always in almost every instance received an answer to this effect, that whether I or anyone else should wish to detect the frauds and avoid the snares of heretics or false teaching, let's just say false teaching, to as they arise, and to continue sound and complete in the Catholic faith, we must, Lord willing, fortify our own belief in two ways. First, by the, uh, the authority of the divine law. What is that? The scriptures. Okay? And then by the tradition of the Catholic Church. Now, he would see, you would think he's sort of saying, well, the, the divine law comes first and then the scripture. That's not exactly what he's saying, but he's basically saying these things work together. The same thing that I've been saying for the last two weeks. Some will ask, since the canon of scripture is complete and sufficient of itself for everything and more than sufficient, what need is there to join it with the authority of the church's interpretation? Owing to the depth of Holy Scripture, all do not accept it in one and the same sense. But one understands its words in one way, another in another, so that it seems to be capable of as many interpretations as there are interpreters. So basically we'd say, okay, you know, I think it says this. No, I think it says that. Well, Billy Bob says it says something else. That's kind of, that's not, that's not healthy. That doesn't bring community. And somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Somebody's closer, somebody's farther away. What we want to do is find the truth and go be there together. We want to go be in the presence of God together. And then he lists all these various heretics and so <clears throat> therefore it is very necessary on account of so great intricacies of such views various errors that the rule for right understanding of the prophets and apostles should be framed in accordance with the standard of ecclesiastical and catholic interpretation okay frame it in the mind of the church change those words frame it in the mind of the church 
Number six. In the Catholic Church itself, all possible care should be taken that we hold the faith which has been believed. Okay, you might, if you, if you don't remember anything else, this, this is the line you want to remember. All possible care must be taken that we hold that faith which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. That's kind of the phrase that he's known for. Now he goes on and he adds a lot of description to this, but everywhere, always, and by all. Well, now you and I know there are lots of Christians, and we don't hesitate to call people who aren't Orthodox Christians. They are Christians. They are Christians. I mean, a Christian is a disciple of Christ. I mean, there were lots of lots of Christians. But if if we want to follow, you know, so it, this idea of everywhere, all where, it's not it's not so easy. It wasn't easy then. He wouldn't have been writing this if it was easy then. There were people then who wanted, even in the New Testament, what does John speak about in his letters? He said, there are people who are going to come among you. They're going to be like wolves. They're going to take you away. Don't believe all of that. Follow the traditions that I gave you. Do what I, you know, remind, remember. Remember what you were taught. There are always going to be people who, for one reason or another, seek to see themselves as more important than the truth. Their own feelings, their own accomplishments, their own safety, their own comfort, whatever it is, their own wealth. So it was hard in Jesus' day. It was hard in Paul's day. It was hard in Vincent's day. It's hard now. Okay? Then he goes on. He says, follow, and this is, I'm going to write these up here just so you can kind of see them. Universality Antiquity and Consent. Follow universality, antiquity, consent. We shall follow universality if we apply that one faith to be true which the whole church throughout the world confesses. Antiquity, if we in no wise depart from those interpretations which is manifest, were notoriously held by our holy ancestors and fathers. Consent, in like manner, if in antiquity itself we adhere to the consentient definitions and determinations of all, or at least almost, or at least almost all the priests and doctors of the faith. So basically he says, look, we have these three sort of tests that we use. And we're going to talk about them again in just a second. Universality is what's been believed by everybody. And secondly, what's been believed from the beginning. And thirdly, what is the consentient understanding of those holy ones who have died in union and communion with the church? Okay, Origen may be one of the greatest thinkers the church ever had. He died out of communion with the church because for whatever reason, pride gained a foothold in him. And he, he's excommunicated and he begins to teach kind of weird stuff. But early on, lots of things he teaches are remarkable. He was a remarkable man. Being a remarkable man does not mean that you necessarily are going to get everything right. You have to, we have to be obedient. We have to be submissive to the, what's true not to define our own truth. Um, so, if we look back and we see 
Basil the Great, we see Irenaeus, we see uh, John uh, the Apostle, we see Paul, we see John of Damascus, we see Gregory Nazianzus, we see Maximus Confessor, and they all say the same thing. All of them die in union and communion with the church, and they're all saying the same thing. That's consent, okay? Yeah, there were people who differed on things. Even in the New Testament, we see that. Don't we see a little dissent in the, in the, uh, in the book of Acts? But we come to some agreement in all of those things. Okay? So now, the last little part, he says, okay, well, how do you use these ideas, these, this, this thought? What then will a Catholic Christian do if a small portion of the church has cut itself off from the communion of the universal faith? So, later on, he gives some examples of this. And I'm going to give you one of those. In, in Northern Africa, at one point, there was a, a, a very able, I guess he was a bishop, Donatus. He was a bishop, right? You remember? Anyway, Donatus was a, a very able at his teaching, and he sort of convinced everybody that if you had in, in, uh, in trials and tribulations, if you had renounced Christ, that there was no way to come back. There was no repentance to come back. Well, we don't believe that. When's the last time you get to repent? Right. A theologian. <laughs> Donatus would have done well to listen. But Donatus basically, because there were people who had remained faithful and lost their lives or become uh, confessors. You know what a confessor is, right? Somebody who's been wounded for the faith. They may have lost an arm, an eye, or their tongue cut out or something. Some, somehow they'd been wounded but lived. Martyrs were those who lost their lives. So there were lots of confessors who didn't waver. And there were those who wavered. Well, Donis didn't like the idea that they got to come back if they repented. That didn't seem fair, did it? It's not fair. Okay, I'm going to jump way over here to Pascha. We preach the same sermon at Pascha every year. Even if he comes at which hour? The 11th hour. He gets the same thing as the guy at the first hour. That's not fair, is it? Fairness has nothing to do with it. It has to do with love, compassion, and honesty before God. Genuine repentance. So, basically, all of those churches in northern, not all, many, many, many churches in northern Africa were cut off because they, they refused to let people back in. The church, yes, Well, the church, yeah, those who were in, who didn't leave with Donatus basically said, no, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong. But my point in this is, so you have a whole group of churches that leave. Yeah, most of those probably come back. But lots of, lots of people didn't come back. But in any event, here's the point. If a small portion of the church has cut itself off from communion of universal faith, what should we do? And he says, prefer the soundness of the whole to the unsoundness of the pestilent and corrupt member, or even members. What if some novel contagion seek to infect not merely an insignificant portion of the church, but the whole? And then this happened, you know when this happened, right? This happened in the fourth century. What happens in the fourth century? Arius. 
How does one priest in Alexandria become so powerful? Because he had, he had sweet words. He, had, he, he, was, he was very able. And it, was, it tickled the people's mind. And so at one point, there's this, there's, you've, I'm sure you've read it, there's this sort of saying, Athanasius against the world. It was as if the only prelate left and the only bishop left in the whole of the world was Athanasius. Well, that wasn't the case. But it, it certainly meant that Athanasius was the, the strongest proponent and the loudest and sort of at the, at the focal point of, of the battle. But there were plenty along with him, east and west, who didn't give in. But it was, I mean, you're going to find lots of writers who say, look, it seemed like the whole world had become Arian. What do we do? Here's what he says. Then it will be his care to cleave to antiquity. What is that? To oh, I love this next line. Which at this day cannot possibly be seduced by any fraud or novelty. How are you going to seduce Athanasius now? This is what Athanasius told you. This was, this was, the, this was the, the, the um, teaching of the Holy Fathers, of the church, of Christ. This was the teaching of Christ from the scriptures, clearly. So prefer, and if in fact a great portion of the church decides it doesn't want to believe in the virgin birth. You know, we have people in our midst who don't, aren't sure about that. I don't mean necessarily here, but there are lots of people. Lots of Christians don't think that's even true. Lots of people don't even think Christ was God. But antiquity says he was. And the whole of the church for quite a bit of time never had any problem with that. Maybe a lot of it, a lot of those who call themselves Christians now may challenge that. But in antiquity, that's not, never challenged. Okay? So, you know, if, if you have to come to this, then you go to, you believe that which has been believed from the beginning. Then he goes on. But what if in antiquity there be found error on the part of two or three? or at any rate of a city or even a province. Then it will be his care, that means the person, person's care, by all means to prefer the decrees, if there are any, of ancient councils to the rashness and ignorance of a few. So if we have a, an orthodox council that sort of, excuse me, an ecumenical council that sort of leaves us with a, a, a path, prefer that to some novel path. That's what he's saying there. If some error should spring up on which there is no such decree, then he must consult and interrogate the opinions of the ancients, of those namely who through living in various times and places yet not yet continuing in communion stand acknowledged and approved as authorities. Whatsoever he shall ascertain to have been held, written, taught, not by one or two only, but by all, or at least by the large percentage of them, consensually, to believe without any doubt or hesitation. I'll give you a little example of that. And for this, this may not mean much to, I mean, most of you probably are happy with this and not ever thought about it very much. John 6, you know what John 6 is about? You know, anybody else? Vine and the bread of life, the bread of life. John talks about that. I grew up as another, in another tradition, and in another tradition, what I'm about to tell you, nobody would ever have even 
thought in these terms. They would have thought the bread of life was that. Well, this is good, but that's not what that's about. From the very beginning, John 6 has always been about the Eucharist. That's what it is. That's what John's writing about. That's the consensual belief. It's also the the, in antiquity. Both of those things, sort of, that's a consensual understanding that everybody understood and, and, and lived with. So I'm just giving you this sort of as a starting point to, to begin to think about, okay, how do I want to come to I want to come with the mind of the church. I want to come with, not mindless. In fact, I want you to come with better minds. I want you to come with minds that are inquiring, that are challenging. I want you to ask questions. I want you to, nobody, God does not want you to lay your mind aside. He wants you to use your mind as, as to be as sharp as anything. But you want it to be sharp in what's true. And for us who can, you know, until we can achieve maybe the status of Chrysostom or Basil the Great or one of those, you know, to have as guides, true guides, who've been approved in the faith, who are, as we say, doctors in the faith, and have left a clear sort of understanding and roadmap within which we can consider these words. Look, every time Father, either of the fathers or I gives a homily, you know, we do try. <laughs> we do try to bring something new to all of those 56 pericopes that we read over the course of a year. We try. Sometimes there's not, it's, you know, we, but every now and then we'll get something new. But for the most part, we're not as interested in getting something new as we are as sticking to what the fathers have handed to us, our faith has handed to us, to be faithful to that. And while you'll go and hear sometimes a homily that's been that's given in other places uh, on all kinds of topics, really what should happen is the priest or the bishop should speak on the gospel because What's our goal? To know God. And, who's, and, and Christ is, the, is the, the God man. And so we speak on the gospel because it's his life. That's what the gospels are. And we're speaking not to teach you. That's not, we're not there to teach in a homily. We're there to challenge you to do the gospel. That's what the homily is about. It's to challenge you to live the life of Christ, to live a Christ-like life. Here's how he lived. You go do that. Let's do that together. And let's, let's have the mind of God in the church that leaves us in a place of safety, not one where we're sort of confused and wondering. There's great safety in, in the faith because we have all of the, a wealth of, of suffering and pain and study and prayer and worship behind us for centuries. And we, we, we rest on that. Okay? And I'm sure I'm over my time. I'm way over. I'm sorry. I was just trying to say something about this. Uh-huh. So in, uh, in Romania, when they, uh, in the communism, when uh, the church, those allowed, the church was allowed, and the services are allowed, <clears throat> but the, pri the priests are forbidden to have the teaching and the uh, elders. So we try, the communists understood that uh, 
just reading and participating without having someone that actually open your eyes about what happens, that is the way to slow moving the people. So that's a good good lesson. That's a good lesson. Okay, any questions? I'll wear you out. Yeah, sure. About uh, in um, about 420. Oh, and, and let me say this also. I mean, even though it's written in 420, as he said, I'm not trying to write something new here that's not been. I'm handing you what I've been handed. Like John of Damascus in the 800s is not sort of pinning, he writes a thing called an exact exposition of the Orthodox faith. Well, it's not John who's defining that. All John's doing is sort of pulling all this together and say, hey, this is what we got, guys. Well, this, this is what he's doing. He's saying, look, this has been the way we've done this. He's just putting to pen that which has been practiced. Is that helpful? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question, and I've got two good guys to help me answer this. But, <laughs> so, but I'm going I'm to tell you, <clears throat> somebody once described, I don't, I don't know if this is the best metaphor for it, but I think it's not a bad metaphor. said the truth is like, um, you, you could sort of put a corral around the truth, okay? And you can keep building on, building on this truth. And it just, the truth gets grander, bigger, fuller, but it never changes. But it doesn't go outside those fences. If you go outside those fences, it's not the truth. That's one analogy. Another is, I think, that <clears throat> we speak about our faith is unchanging or our God is unchanging. I think that's a little short-sighted in this. Is, yeah, we have an unchanging God, and we have a God who is the height of activity at the same time, or dynamism, life. God is life. So somehow we have an unchanging God who is more alive than anything we can, can, can understand, and active and unchanging. How do you have those things? That's one of the aspects of the Godhead that's hard for us to understand. So when we, one of the reasons we hold on to the truth that we have, it's not that we say, well, we can't have any new ones, but any, what we can, let me back up. What truth we have doesn't change. What we may get, and this happens like in the, in the first council, we may get more expressions of that same truth that help us understand better. So that was one of the big arguments in the first council was about whether or not to use this famous word homoousian or not because it, it conveyed an understanding that was very important, but it had never been used before in any kind of theological talk, or you know, certainly even in the scriptures. It's not anywhere in the scriptures. Why do we use this word? Because it describes something that we need better description for, too, so we can not lose our, our clear understanding of who our God is. He is the same. The Father and the Son are the same in nature. There's no difference in nature. They're totally separate as persons. 
So that word had a, an important place to play. But that word didn't exist, wasn't ever used for the first 300 years. Did that mean they were deficient? No. It just means, and God in his great mercy gives us some more understanding or ways of expressing things. And Okay, now I made my shot at it. I'm gonna <laughs> you want to add to that? Things wrong here. You know, I may, not, I may not be having all the pieces line up. Yeah. But that thing also about, I'm gonna, I get you. Uh, look, this is real. There is an evil one. He cannot touch you unless you let him touch you. He can't do anything for you, but he can scare you and, or try to scare you, he can, and he can lie to you. And he's been, as one, somebody said, somebody said uh, the greatest psychiatrist in the world has been to 30 years of school, maybe, in practice. And the, the, the demonic have been doing this for millennia. They know how to manipulate things but way beyond. I mean, and so the, the evil one will look for new ways to sort of twist things around. What does he do with Adam and Eve? First thing he does, he goes in the garden, he tells them a little bit of truth and a little bit of lies, and all of a sudden we have a mess. Right? Well, and so he's been doing that forever. The evil one, Satan doesn't come to you or me. I mean, he goes to Anthony the Great or Basil the Great or somebody, you know, but... But the, the, but the demonic world does, and the effects of the demonic world are, the, are ours. And so you mentioned this thing about, okay, Christ is fully human. Well, so, so he says, okay, well, uh, they got that right, but let's sort of tweak that fully human a little bit. That means he really didn't have a, a, a mind, a human mind. So the council later said, no, he does have a human mind. We've got to say that too. Well, that means he didn't really have a human will. No, he does have a human will. That's part of what being fully human is. You've got to understand. So we have to add some more expression to that just to guard that from the onslaughts of the evil one who wants to keep you from what? Knowing, Knowing God. Yes. Blessed. Right. So we list Augustine in our list of saints. But you're going to find that there are some Orthodox who sort of question that. <laughs> some would say, oh, yeah, he's blessed, but we don't put him on the same stature as we do Basil the Great or somebody like that. Is that fair, Father? So that, but I, I think we both, certainly Augustine is, is listed in our saints uh, of the church. And I, I've never checked about Jerome. I don't know. So. It probably is. Jerome was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. The Russians tend to be a little more like, yeah. <laughs> isn't that right? <laughs> well, so like you read something, you say, I never had that qu quite that understanding. It might not be bad to go sit down with Father Alex or Father Philip and say, Am I reading this right? Do I have this understanding right, or am I missing something here? And they can say, well, I think you're right, but let's read it together. That's kind of what they'll say. I'm predicting here. And say, let's go look at it again together and see, and maybe we'll read a couple of other things and see. But, I mean, that's always a good thing to do. Yeah. I don't know if I'm answering. Am I answering your question? Pretty much. <laughs> I wouldn't tell you not to read the fathers without talking to them. Yeah. But I would say to you, if you're going to read the fathers, have a dialogue with your priest is a good thing. 
How many times you come talk to me? Yeah. It wasn't always good, but sometimes it was okay, right? Yeah. Uh, you're too nice. Too nice. I know it wasn't always good. But, yeah. well, what else? Thank y'all for being attentive. So, God bless you.